everybody. Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast. I am your host, Christopher Funderburg. I am joined, as always, by the lovely and talented John Cribs. Hello. Um, John, you sent me a text this morning that said, I am freaking out. And I immediately wrote back like, oh, because John works in a hospital, is he upset about what's happening with COVID-19 and the pandemic and all of that? And uh, you, in fact, were not freaking out about the pandemic. And I knew that you weren't, even though when you said you were freaking out and everybody else in the planet seems to be freaking out about that, because you are just the most preternaturally calm person uh, about that stuff. It, it seemed impossible to me that that's what you were freaking out about. Um, and it was a relief that you weren't in some way that you were actually freaking out about an adaptation of I'm Dangerous Tonight done for an anthology television series with David Bowie, correct? Exactly. I just couldn't believe I'd never heard of this before today. Uh, yeah, but I did want to say something at the top of this episode, which we are recording on uh, March 18th, 2020, that obviously this is a crazy moment in history, and there's some ways in which it feels uh uh, strange to just be doing what we do and talking about a book. But, uh, you know, I don't have some grand statement about how art and criticism and life continues on and all of that. But I did want to say that, you know, talking to you about art and about books and about cinema is something I really, really like to do. And I'm not going to give up doing that just because the world is potentially collapsing. So I felt like we needed some preamble to address it. Uh, do, you have, do you have anything you need to express, John, other oh, than a burning I, hot hatred for all diseases? I completely agree, Chris. I hope that you and I are still talking about adaptations of I'm Dangerous Tonight and other Cornell Woolrich favorites as the buildings are burning and the helicopters are falling from the sky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because at some really, point you do find solace in, in these in this artwork. I mean, this book that we're talking about today is one of it's a favorite for both of us. And yes, back in revisiting this book and reading it twice, you know, because this is just one of those few books where you can literally finish the last page and then start the next. The first. That's page. exactly what I did. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. This book is a freaking breeze to read. And what are we talking about tonight, John? Should we just get right into it? We should, but I just wanted to say as well. Yeah, we should just continue on and, and just being on social media and seeing people not making light of the situation, but just, you know, continuing to cheer each other up with, you know, the things that we all love and the things that we can share with each other has been really spiriting for me as well. Yeah, yeah. So I'm glad that we can continue and I hope everyone is up for this because the reason that we, I wanted to talk to you about this particular book, Chris, is I hear that you're a man with grit. <laughs> I think you got some bad intel from my my lieutenant. <laughs> I think you should have gone with the other ranger, the one that he suggested. We are talking about Charles Portis's True Grit. Uh, you know, I'm going to keep my Clinton Portis sheriff going to get you jokes to a minimum because I feel <laughs> like there's... 0% of the listening audience that's instantly going to understand what I'm talking about with that. But, Save uh, him for the end. Save him for the end. But it will be hard not to. Hard not to. Uh, before we dive into the book, what we do on the literature podcasts that we do is uh, we 
provide a aperitif and a dessert pairing to go with the novel we're talking about before we discuss the novel, something that you can sample to get you in the right mindset and lead you into it. Uh, and then afterwards, a dessert to take you out of it in some way, something to top it all off, a perfect capper. So um, before we discuss True Grit and the story of True Grit and our deepest thoughts and feelings and imaginings on it, uh, John, what is your aperitif pairing? I'm going to suggest Best Calloway's Disappointment, the book about a young girl in England who could not make up her mind whether to marry a rich man with a pack of dogs named Alec or a preacher. I'm kidding. That's a reference to True Grit. That's yeah. that, that Maddie sits around reading early in the, in the book, but I just thought it was a great joke. Yes. And, and I also like that she enjoys it too. Yes. I think she... that's, that's kind of part of the joke. I think that she's reading this story about, you know, this dainty young kid, young woman who could not be more opposite to her. When she's sharing the bed with the sick old uh, boarder, right? Right. They <laughs> are reading it together. Yes. And then it she is finds it impressive. No, I would recommend a film actually about uh, another such character with grit named Max Rokitansky, who is himself <laughs> reluctantly aligning his personal destiny to cross paths with a group of outlaws that is narrated by a kid as an old man. I talk, of course, of The Road Warrior. Yes. Because like The Road Warrior, True Grit is just, it's an amazing, it's, it can be enjoyed in so many ways, but mainly just as a, just as a straight up, you know, non-pretentious, just fun adventure story yeah it is as an, une it's as unequal. an action story yes. yes both are unequal mad max and and true grit are are unequaled yeah as much as there is to appreciate about both of them what they have in common mostly i think is that just at the end of the day it's just a fun yarn you know it's just a great story about a guy stepping up and being a clear good guy you know like yeah someone who's had like a rocky past and maybe is a bit ashamed of you know the things that he's gotten involved with but when he steps up and you know does the right thing and the outlaws justice is dished out you know it's just that satisfying kind of an adventure story and you're not recommending beyond thunderdome which has its maddie ross character that wants to go to tomorrow Morrowland. <laughs> it's true i don't know i think that uh feral boys wave bye bye about. to the high scrapes <laughs> Feral Boy is my Maddie Ross pick of the day. <laughs> That's very good. Who's Mad Max's LaBeouf? LaBeef. It's a good question. I guess it must be the uh, <laughs> the blonde guy, right? The uh, the head of the the compound, or it's the Warrior Woman. I guess it must be the warrior woman must be his Labeef. I know. She certainly has her hair done up in a way that's incongruous with the settings in a way that I picture Labeef having his hair done up mm -hmm. in a way she's, in a very Glen Campbell-esque. And she certainly is most critical of his methods than anybody else. So I think it's probably the warrior <laughs> woman. Or, or it's top knot lady. I don't know. I can't decide. It's a good question. A lot of little beefs in, uh, in Road Warrior. More, way more than you would think. You would think there would be virtually no Labeefs in it. And it does. And you know what? It does have Humongous, which is the, uh, very much the Ned Pepper to the, uh, you know, the lesser Smegma Boys, Tom Chaney's. Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Although the vengeance in that, in that is all on Wes, right? The, uh, yeah. the, the head henchman punk who gets his, uh, his companion, his bike riding companion, murdered by Feral Kid. 
early in the movie. So really, he's he's the one on on for vengeance. Find it for, for revenge. <laughs> We've been looking at it the wrong way. Is Wes the Maddie Ross character? I gotta turn this all and around. Humongous is the Rooster Cogburn. <laughs> We've got to flip it, turn it upside down. A lot of different angles you can look at it. I can picture. I can definitely picture Humongous riding in reins in his teeth, revolvers <laughs> blazing. <laughs> And, and 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 teaming up with Quantrill's Raiders. I think that would be much more of a humongous thing to do than a yeah. uh, Max Rectansky. The only difference is that Humongous would obviously have bodies strapped to the front of his horse. A <laughs> um, couple of unfortunate prisoners. Chris, what is your aperitif for True Grit? My pairing is also a film and it is a movie that came out one year after this book was written it actually came out the same year as the film adaptation and i think it's instructive to think about the context of where the western was at uh when this book was written and when the movie came out and that is the wild wild bunch yes that the wild bunch i think is a really interesting pairing with this book because the book is a novel out of time in 1968 in some ways you feel like when you read it this must have been written in like 1920 you know it has Mm. something so perfectly archaic about its voice and language that it's easy to forget that it's actually a revisionist history that it's a critique of the western genre that it's a very knowing look back at um the myths of the old west and sort of taking apart the mythic old west in some very fundamental way is what the novel is trying to do and obviously all of the things i've just said are applied to the wild bunch as well i mean i think even down to this book's sense of violence it's very violent when it needs to be violent and um in a way that's not uh, capricious or even necessarily uh, fun, that that the violence is heavy in this book when it happens. And um, I think that that's something that it has in common with The Wild Bunch, but I think putting it in the context of the Western is getting ready to fucking die, and there are these artworks that are there to kill it off, right? And True Grit and The Wild Bunch are two of those things that are coming out you know, guns blazing to take it down, you know? Yeah. And, um, and for me, cause it's easy, it's easy to feel like, Oh, is this written? Like, you know, Louis L'Amour era, you know, kind of thing. Is this, is this a, a, a book from the fifties? And no, it's not. It's very much, um, in a funny way. It's, interesting how Portis ties to the countercultural era. Uh, he's in, in a lot of ways somebody who would never be able to be part of a counterculture because he's such a different, unique voice from it and his perspective is so different. Mm-hmm. But he's definitely the kind of sui generis uh, creator and artist who fuels the counterculture, you know, that it's actual iconoclasm from him, not sort of a popular style iconoclasm like a lot of countercultural 60s bullshit had a tendency to be. Much it's like not Beckham about Paul. yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That Peck and Paul is the same kind of iconoclast who who doesn't feel like a part of what was happening with the hippies at all, uh, but is still just as responsible for revising how we think about history. 
That's a really interesting pick. And uh, Outlaw Vern, one of our favorite critics, just wrote a uh, great piece on The Wild Bunch where he points out that children are all over the movie. There's not, you know, a child lead character. Yeah. But that they almost kind of serve as like a silent Greek chorus yeah. throughout the, the are film they, or like an audience. They're in the very first shot, right? Or it's the shot of the, the scorpions. Yeah, when the, when the Wild Bunch arrive yeah. in town, it's them. Yeah, with the uh, scorpion in the pile of ants. Yeah. So right from the beginning, we're starting with it. And then there's the one at the end who shoots Pike. So yeah, they're just, they're there throughout the whole story. Yes. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, John, when we get into this book, this is a book that has an opening line that's so good and so memorable. How are we going to begin talking about it without just reading the opening line? (laughs) Right? Yeah. People do not give it credence that a 14-year-old girl could leave home and go off in the wintertime to avenge her father's blood, but it did not seem so strange then, although I will say it did not happen every day. Every day. It's amazing. <laughs> it's an amazing opening line. It's so you're. It, it comes from yeah. a paper. It comes from a newspaper man. You know, I mean, Portis. You know, worked for uh, various papers all around the world. He worked in uh, London. He worked in Texas and Arkansas. So he knew how to just give them a lot. Like give us the information in a way that just really immediately pulls you in. And that's like a newspaper man's opening line of a novel. You know. Yes, and it's both plain spoken and insanely distinct which is how i would categorize this novel is that this novel is both um it feels like regular language but it's so idiosyncratic it is the most uh it is one of the most fun books to read period every sentence has something surprising in it without being difficult at all it's just a breeze to read and i think it's Mm -hmm. i think you're right that connecting it to the newspaper is a uh, fascinating thing also supposedly uh one of his jobs was uh one of the things he had to do was was to uh redact the lady stringers who apparently um had the kind of uh uh outlandish language that maddie ross uses although that is purely (laughs) something that like I'm just taking people's word for it on there. This is not this is not an avenue that I am deeply familiar with. The story of what newspaper men were like in Portis's era. Yeah, and as a newspaper man, I think that his approach to the story as well gives it so many layers. And again, in a way that's not like something you have to work to really get. It's just he's telling you the story as a man writing about a woman, a, an elderly woman looking back at her time as a 14 year old during this, te- during this period. So yeah. kind of telling the story through that, through her kind of misunderstandings of what's going on as a yeah. child. Um, and, and then, so to get all those layers within and still make it such a breezy narrative and such a entertaining narrative is just, I can't even think of anyone else who could have done this. You know, it's just that, it's that unique. Yes, it's it's such a phenomenal book. And the basic story is this, that in 1970, or 1973, the basic story is this, that in 1873, Arkansas, a uh, man is killed by one of his ranch hands who absconds with uh, two gold doubloons and a horse and a little bit of money. And the man who is killed, his daughter, goes to uh, find this man, Tom Cheney, who has killed her father and get revenge. And in doing so, she goes to the, the biggest town nearby 
and ask the uh, marshals there to recommend somebody uh, to uh, take this bounty and go get this man who's killed her father. And she comes into contact with the handsome, uh, <laughs> overdressed uh, Labeef, and it's spelled like Labeouf, uh, and Rooster Cogburn, who is a uh, uh, the man who is the true grit of the title that she believes that this sort of salty, quick with his pistol, uh, old former um, member of Quantrill's Raiders is, will be the man for the job. And in coming in contact with Rooster Cogburn, one of my favorite details in the books is she asks for recommendations on, on which uh, marshal to use. And the, uh, the, the one the gentleman giving the recommendations talks about his best marshals sort of glosses over rooster and then starts thinking about this one guy who's the best marshal he has and sort of gives this just how bad ass is he speech about this guy who's going to be great and she circles back to rooster cogburn uh because his description of rooster is he's basically the meanest one i have he's the one who will be most certain to want to kill the guy right and, and the one he recommends is the one who brings him in alive and if he can't do that then maybe he'll let him go <laughs> yes and she goes back to to rooster who's essentially you know oh that guy he used to be a you know ride with the james gang and be a, a bit of a problem and his history spotty and uh but boy does he take him down you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the first great details about Maddie Ross in, in mm -hmm. the book is that she selects Rooster Cogburn, not this guy who's been presented as the most noble and even-handed and uh, equanimous of the, of the marshals, but the, but the mean old bastard. Yeah. I mean, she's out for justice. I mean, this is a book about balance and just balance and justice in a lot of ways, you know, I mean, yes. one, of the, one of the first things where we really get to know her character is her, uh, bartering with the uh, the guy who sold the ponies to her father, who she now wants to sell the ponies back to because they have yes, no use. Yes, there's for them. a stockman. The father is buying these stringy uh, Texas colts that are apparently of no use for anybody. And her father has some harebrained plan about how they'll be useful. And her first order of business is, "My father's dead. I'm not taking these terrible horses from you." That her father had the idea to breed them. Yes. And it turns out there isn't even I can't remember if there are no women, no no females or no males, no, but basically it's all they've all been they've all been neutered for whatever. Oh, is that reason. what it is? Okay. Yeah. So at any at any rate it's a harebrained scheme. Neutered is not the right sterilized was uh, whatever the word is. Neutered is not the right word for what they're doing. But, but that too is interesting because we don't get much information about Frank Ross. Geldings, that's the word I'm looking for. Geldings, okay. So Frank Ross, her father, who is dead before we get to meet him, all we really come learn about him is that okay, so he's kind of like a cockeyed optimist a little bit he makes bad decisions you know he ha he has good intentions but obviously he hires this man cheney who is not reliable and yes. ultimately murders him you know yes. he comes cheney up with this gets drunk scheme. in a card fight gets drunk loses at cards goes out to shoot the guy who beat him fair at square at cards and maddie ross's father steps in the way and essentially says don't go shoot this guy you don't have a right and that's when tom cheney shoots him trying to get this guy out of trouble and for his yeah. effort is murdered yeah and, and robbed um so it's it's an interesting contrast to maddie who from the very beginning will not be taken advantage of and will yes. not do foolish things and you just kind of kind of immediately understand 
what kind of relationship she must have had with her father, who is a guy who obviously would get into these sorts of circumstances. And yes, you could probably, she, she probably idolizes loves him. Father. Yes. Obviously idolizes she loves him. him. Yes. Beyond loves him. She loves her mother too, but she doesn't idolize her mother who I think she sees as a bit of a weakling who mm-hmm. is just going to let everything go to shit unless she takes charge. Yeah. Whereas well, certainly she, of her father yeah. are that idolizing him. Yeah. I'm so it, she admires clearly admires like you know his his invention and his willingness to go out and try things like this even while kind of rolling her eyes and realizing it's a harebrained scheme you know it's a bad idea and it's a terrible idea to hire a man like this to be a, a ranch hand so you kind of just get that without any real description of him but just from her from learning about her character you kind of just immediately understand this relationship that they had and at the same time why she would want to avenge his death specifically, why it's so important to her to be there when Tom Cheney goes down, not just hire somebody to go out into the Choctaw nation and bring him back or or to shoot him. She needs to be there. She needs to know that he knows he's being punished for her father's death specifically. Yes. Yeah. That, that this is the mission and this is the reason for it. Mm -hmm. Um, so we get introduced to Rooster. Yeah, let me back up just one mm, okay. second. Get some. Yeah, you and I are both really big Charles Portis fans, right? Yes. Just in a general way, before we get focused exclusively on True Grit, my relationship to True Grit was always a little weird in that Charles Portis was one of the first authors when I was young, when I was like a teenager or college age, who was mine. You know what I mean? That mm. nobody else read him. Nobody else had heard of him. There wasn't any, um, he wasn't like a known figure. You didn't hear him mentioned in school ever. You didn't hear uh, critics talk about him. None of the writers I liked ever mentioned him. He was somebody that I felt like I had discovered and was completely mine. When yeah, I was, up until yeah. the early or mid 2000s, uh, True Grit was the only one of his books still in print. You like, yes. couldn't find Dog of the South or even his more recent, most recent book, which was uh, Gringos. You could not yes. find that in a bookstore anywhere. Yeah, you had to find used books to get yeah. any of those, which is what I had of, of, of all of them at the beginning were, were the used bookstore mm-hmm. versions of that. And because he was mine, I had a resistance to true grit because that was like the known one. You know what I mean? That was the one that had the John Wayne movie based on it. The one movie he won his Oscar for. That was the one that people had heard of. So I was always like, oh, that's not even the best one. Mm-hmm. You know, like if it got bought up, brought up, I'd be like, oh, you like True Grit? You don't know Charles Portis. You know, if that's your only frame of reference. Um, now that I'm older, it's so fucking amazing. It's the best one. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. Like, there's the reason it's famous because it's fucking amazing. There's a reason that's... The Wild Bunch is the most famous of the Peck and Ball movies, you know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That seems to be the attitude of a lot of the really hardcore Portis fans. It's like, oh yeah, True Grit, whatever. Yeah. And it's like, no, 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 no. Let's, let's back up and say... It's fucking amazing. <laughs> yeah, well, he is such a cult author. And I think with, with cult 
personalities that like the the obscurity of it is a lot of the part of the cult you know that the obscurity of this that you have it's almost a cult you know with the uh the idea of a cult meaning secret knowledge right that you have this secret knowledge which is this author and so the most popular thing it reduces the the potency of the secret knowledge in some way but especially you know, I don't want to say reading it this time. I was like, definitely True Grit is the best. Like years ago, I reread True Grit and was like, oh, it's obviously the fucking best. They're all great, but it's obviously the fucking best. This time reading again is like, if maybe if I could only read one book again for the rest of my life and I just had to read it over and over, this is a good pick. Not that it's my favorite book, but if there was only one book to read, you, it's really hard to get sick of this book is another thing about it. It's a book that's super easy to read and probably pretty hard to get tired of, I would think. Yeah. yeah. So what was, what was your, because Williford, uh, not Williford. Um, Portis, I do that a lot too. They're both Charles. So I, yeah. They're both Charles. They were both, both Southern writers who were favorites. They were both in the, in the military. Uh, mm-hmm. They were both, they have a similar sensibility. They both sort of weren't, uh, they weren't unsuccessful in their time, but they weren't, respected to the to the extent that i think they should have been um we didn't talk about portis much until i feel like late in the process you and i have known each other for over 20 years now and i don't feel i feel like the first time i talked about charles portis with you was when we noticed in one of the credits of mr show they thank him in the credits Mm -hmm. on an episode and i was like whoa charles portis and you did the like yeah, he's great. And I had this like, wait, you know, ah, you know, kind of <laughs> reaction to it. And like, I wonder why they thank them. And then eventually when the DVDs came out, they just mentioned that they thank random people that they were influenced by in the credits that have nothing to do with it. But for a long time, I was like, I wonder what Charles Portis has to do with Mr. <laughs> Mr. Show. Did he write some jokes? Did he write the uh, pre-tape Colin show? Clearly. <laughs> he secretly came in and was part of the writer's room. Exactly. Like, who the fuck knows? But <laughs> yeah. one of the great exciting mysteries that's solved with, oh, it's nothing. It's nothing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I, it's um, funny because quite accidentally, I read him chronologically. Oh, Nor- really? Yeah. Norwood was the first one I read and was like, Norwood oh. was the last one I read because it was the hardest to find for a long time. Yeah. Because I was just a library hound at the time. So I just, I read Norwood first and was like, whoa, great. What's, yeah, what's next? And went to True Grit and read all five, all five of his novels. And at the end was like, great. What's, what's the next one? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, but he's that, real easy to be a completist with. Yeah. Real easy. That, that said, he he really makes a case for hey just write one novel every a decade and as long as they're all top notch masterpieces yeah. like you know you'll establish your your reputation just fine. I'm trying to remember what the first one I read was. Uh, I think it was Dog of the South was the first one I read because yeah. I was just randomly finding them in in bookshops and I don't even know what um what attracted me it it's probably from an era where i was probably confusing him with someone you know what i mean that i probably saw charles portis and dog of the south and it was like it's an elmore leonard book you know kind of yeah. thing that that because it was that age when i first read the first one but he was also from an era for me these aren't 
they're hard to 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 uh, classify books as well. True Grit is obviously a western. The rest are kind of crime novels. You know, the only way I the only way I would describe them to somebody to kind of just use my experience is to say, if you want, you know, a writer who is really smart and funny and comes up with really great stories about people who just get out on the road and have adventures on the road and meet interesting, weird characters. Don't read, uh, you know, Tom Robbins, Tom Robbins, you know, um, read Charles Portis, you know, like, you know, stay away from, you know, some of the popular authors of the day. Uh, This guy who no one is talking about is, was, became before these guys and is a million times better. Yeah. There's something about his sensibility that, to me connects him to like Charles Williford and Elmore Leonard, but he doesn't write those kind of books. Mm, no. You know what I mean? That, no, no. that there's something about his sensibility in my head. I'm like, he's a crime novelist. Well, that's not what he is at all. Yeah. I think maybe it's the, the darkness and the humor and the, the uh, propulsiveness of the plotting all works together to give it uh, a very pulp feel like a crime novel feel yeah there's there's also to bring back this theme that you know i mentioned in true grit this idea of justice that these characters feel they're owed something yeah and it could be something as small as you know uh this guy owes me 75 bucks that i lent him while we were at camp you know at uh um basic together i need to go find him and get it yeah. from him uh to you know this my man murdered my father i need to go and avenge his death they all just have this similar sense of like i gotta go get my wife back whatever it is it's yes. all just like these missions that the person that, that could seem to most people like well, well you don't need to be personally involved in this this is not something that you know yeah you need to even need to worry about it it's like no this is something that i need because i am owed this you yeah. know, this well, is Dark my, of the South is just right. wants his car back and he goes all the way to the, Mexico. The Torino, or, right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sure. That it's the, very much the same thing. You know, you've, you've talked about justice. When I read True Grit this time, what I was thinking a lot about is this book is really about the uh, idea of what it means to be good versus righteous, mm, yeah. right? Yeah. That you can be a good person without being righteous and you can be a righteous person without being particularly good. And then you can be a bad person who's neither good nor righteous. So fuck you, you know, which I think is also a part of the constellation that maybe gets lost in something like the wild bunch, you know, that there's actual, like there's also shitheads out there and fuck them, you know, which is also Mm -hmm. part of this, that good and righteous don't exist without you know, corrupt and evil to be set against in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that you could distinguish between a character like Maddie Ross, whose father's been murdered once to avenge his death, compared to Tom Chaney when they meet him, who says, Oh my God, I murdered this guy and robbed him and went out into the wild. And now I'm with these guys who don't like me very much. Everything is against me. You know, everything is against <laughs> that me. He has this philosophy of, I'm the one who's been shit upon here. Like, He's the fucking robber and murderer, and he thinks that he's the one who's been dealt a bad hand, you know? That he's got his own sense of justice compared to Maddie, or even Lucky Ned Pepper at the end where he says to Rooster, will you give us the road? You know, will you let us get away? And you kind of have this feeling like, oh yeah, why not? You know, yeah. like what, what <laughs> does he not have a right to exist like anybody else and go on robbing trains and doing what it is he yeah. does. What is it that sets him apart from Rooster? Especially when that's what Rooster did. Originally. Right. That Rooster was given a second chance somehow. 
um, that's one of the main things about this book that it's, <laughs> there's a lot to talk about with this book. Um, but Rooster is a, all of his history is that he's a bad guy. He was one of Contrell's raiders. And for those who don't know what that was, they were uh, pro-Confederate, uh, like outlaw group, essentially bushwhackers who would track down freed slaves and bring them back and escape slaves. They were not really anything other than except sort of sowing chaos. And there's no way to look at them as being good. They're most famous for that the, the James brothers were part of the Quantrill's Raiders before they became bank robbers. And it's said that Rooster Cogburn might have engaged in some bank robbery and train robbery himself before he made his way over to become a marshal, that essentially he avoided hanging by becoming a good guy. Um, and then later on in the book, one of my favorite lines where she's talking about after she's lost touch with Rooster Cogburn after the story of this adventure, that he didn't exactly cover himself in glory in the Johnson County War, right? Which the Johnson County war was horrible that's what heaven's gate is about the michael cimino film that right. Rooster Cogburn is one of the bad guys in heaven's one gate. of the hired assassins right yes who's just like killing these farmers and working class people in a in a shameless land grab that is there is no way to uh interpret it as being a moral righteous action right which specifically Raiders are not righteous. He's, uh, you know, being with the James gang is not righteous. Johnson County war is not righteous. Right. Right. Um, what was that? I'm sorry. You were going to say specifically. Well, gonna, yeah. Well, just going to say how you said it almost feels like a book written in 1920, you know, when some of those early Western, you know, uh, narratives were coming out specifically the Virginian, right. The very famous book. Yeah. is about a guy who was one of the, the Virginian himself, the hero, was one of those hired assassins of the Johnson County War, which the author is like, high five, man. Yeah. Even those foreigners, you know, like, yeah. oh my God. Yeah, <laughs> no, exactly. But I think the book is a little more sly than all of that. But, so I was going to say all this stuff is not righteous at all. Mm -hmm. But if you read the Rooster Cogburn character, everything he does, it's impossible not to see him as a good man. Whatever that means, Rooster Cogburn is a good man that even in the way that Labeef isn't, Labeef is almost like a functionary. He's neither righteous nor good. He's just an agent of the state who's going to get his bounty and follow the law. And I think that that's the, the Labeef character exists for that reason to show it how you can do the right thing and not be a good person or a righteous person for doing the right thing. And you can do all of this wrong stuff and there's still some kernel of goodness in you, even when you've done awful, indefensible things. That's a really unpopular idea nowadays, obviously. Sure. You know, that yeah. to say that somebody who was involved with pro-Confederates tracking down escaped slaves can in any way be interpreted as a good character. But I think that- and participating that's what... in a raid on Lawrence, Kansas, where they murdered all the men and-, and uh, Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. <laughs> that he's involved in the, uh, yeah. Um, I think, you know, obviously a very significant and important, maybe but the Portis most important. Portis is aware of this. Portis yeah, yeah. Is aware maybe of the most None of this is a mistake. He's not the Virginian author asking for high That's what I'm saying. Yeah, no, if anything, it's like maybe a comment on those kind of books in that way and that he, you know, is reexamining them in the way that, you know, only he can do. Uh, probably the most significant and important scene, I think, in the whole book is when they come upon the boys torturing the mule. 
Yes. And Rooster cuts the mule free. This is a man who we've, you know, been introduced to uh, defending himself for shooting down a gang of wanted men. Yeah. Called into question, you know, were they really, was it really self-defense? Did you give them a chance? Did you murder or one of the two of them, you know, just innocent people who you murdered because of your bloodlust? So he's just immediately being asked these questions. And then his character from that point on is of, you know, a drunk who is probably not too reliable and yes. certainly is not looking out for candy. Maddie. That's yeah. like the only thing he eats is candy. He <laughs> just wants to hang around with uh, his cat, General Sterling Price. Yes. And uh, yeah. Which is another, you know, yeah. We'll come back to that for sure. But yeah. Um, yeah, but then this moment where he goes out of his way to stop this mule being whipped by these two sadistic kids and then kicks them in the ass and tells them to get out of there. That's the moment you realize like, there's good in this guy. Like he's on the right side. Yes. He's not going to sit idly by and watch this happen. Yeah. Watch these kids torture this animal for no good reason. Yeah. And, and that's, and throughout the book, he always does. If there is a right thing to be done, he does the right thing. If there's a moral choice, that's sort of, you can do good or do bad here while at the same time, not being anything that you would think Maddie, especially narrating the book, which we don't find out until later as a, as a uh, spinster, uh, as a miserly unloved spinster mm-hmm. uh, um, would interpret as being uh, acceptable behaviors. She's very judgmental character and she has a, a, a naive judgmentalness that when you it's revealed that it's actually an older character, you realize that it's actually a, a hardened uh, judgmentalness. Um, I think that's one of the, it's almost like the twist ending of this book to realize, you know, that that's this one armed old woman. Uh, just to give a line from the end of it that to, the characterization that I love when you realize how old she is, uh, is uh, people love to talk. They love to slander you if you have any substance. They say, I love nothing but money in the Presbyterian church, and that is why I never married. They think everybody is dying to get married. It is true that I love my church and my bank. What is wrong with that? I will tell you a secret. Those same people who talk mighty nice when they come in to get a crop loan or a beg a mortgage extension, you know, where it's like <laughs> she's having people coming in begging to get their mortgages extended. She's just turned into a Scrooge, basically. <laughs> yes. And, and, but for her to have um, fond memories of, of Rooster Cogburn is not, uh, it's not incongruous with the character we've seen of her, that he proves himself to be a man who has true grit. And I think that that's why this book is called True Grit, is it's trying to determine by what what do you mean by that? What's yeah. the the essence of being good or righteous or of substance? You know, like, what do we mean when we say that about people? You know, what do we mean when we say that? What do we mean when we say that this is a person of substance, when we mean that they have true grit or that they're righteous or good, you know? Yeah, what does Maddie mean specifically, yeah. Yeah, but I, yes. But I think as a way of also looking at it in in a more general way too you know that this this book is is about that and this book is also very careful to remind you it's a very simple story in some ways you know not much happens in this book you know she goes and meets rooster and uh labeef they head out you know they find ned pepper and the gang 
and they they kill him. That's basically all that happens in this book, right? Sure. Escape by the skin of their teeth. A little, little bit with rattlesnakes and then the end. Yeah, sure. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then a little bit of an epilogue to it. Yeah. But I was curious, you know, I don't want to completely talk all over you. For me, this book, one of the th- reasons I think it's fell, fallen out of favor, this was a book that was much more wild, widely read in its day uh, and that I feel like more people used to read it. I think the reasons it's fallen out of favor are for some of the things I've touched on. But this book to me, you know, I'm not a true Southerner because I moved around so much, but I was born in Richmond and lived in Baton Rouge and New Orleans and Nashville for a significant chunk of my life. This this book also has something in it that it's saying the South doesn't have to hate itself. I think is why this is is sort of this undercurrent in this book is that you can be a Southerner who doesn't hate yourself for the history of the South's past. And I can understand why that's completely um, not going to fly these days. But I also look at genuinely good people like my mom, who's one of the best people you could ever meet in the world, a true good person, Uh, down to her bones and my dad who's a great guy and they're both southerners who love the south in some very fundamental way and I think that the Maddie Ross character and this is a book that I know is very popular amongst southern women too that if they read it they love it Um, to me Maddie Ross is like the idealized version of the perfect southern woman Uh, she's she's uh, uh, any good southern woman even if she doesn't want to be like Maddie Ross, admires Maddie Ross, right? That there's just something about like a church-going, responsible, non-flashy, can can do everything that needs to be done on the ranch, can do business affairs, can be in charge, but is also essentially uh, a woman in some way. I think that that this is a really idealized version of the perfect Southern woman in some ways. And well, yeah, I don't think have to hate her, you know, and the South doesn't have yeah. to hate itself. So it's great because I think it's complicated too. Because I think, well, I think I think what it is is that this, as much as you respect Maddie Ross's character and that her definition of true grit is somebody basically who doesn't back away and wuss out, right? Someone who's going yes. to step forward when there's something to be done and gets it done. You know, no matter how it ends up, how they end up looking or how the situation ends up, you know, looking to other people, they get the job done and that's what they're there to do. Yeah. Uh, which, which is definitely a very Southern sentiment, I think. But at the same time, we, we, we're entertained by her, the absurdism of her in yes. a lot of ways. You know, there's yes. a lot, a lot of the humor. And same it's as knowing we, and it's laughing at itself. The same way we laugh at Norwood Pratt or Ray Midge in the other books, you know, is that we kind of see that like her principles and her even her sense of justice is a little ridiculous, informed as it is in this character by uh, the fact that she loves, uh, oh no, who is it? Woodrow Wilson, right? The yes. greatest Presbyterian gentleman of the age. Um, and, you know, the way that she judges other people, you know, based on... Well, she's very focused on, is he a Democrat or a Republican? And yeah. based on that label, I will feel one way or the other about them. Exactly. That she that she uses, you know, preset things to, you know, to, to immediately judge people. 
and you know that her understanding of i think she's a very righteous character but i don't think she's good Hmm. i don't think she does anything that you can identify as being good in this book i think everything she does is completely righteous at all times from you know, uh, loving her bank in the church to wanting to to get the man who killed her father, but can any of it be described as good? She doesn't and, cut them; just cut the mule loose. You know, she wouldn't. She maybe wish she wouldn't do that if she were in that position. No, you know? she's focused on criticizing the two kids who who mm-hmm. uh, locked him up. She's more right. like uh, all about disliking those kids than saving the mule. That's perfect description. Absolutely. <laughs> And I think that that's, that's what I think a lot about this is, can you describe her as being good? And does that matter? Does it, is it better to be, you know, <laughs> my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in the book is when they're shooting up the corn dodgers, right? They have these little <laughs> yes. hush puppy cornmeal things that they... They sound at. so good. I get so mad in that scene <laughs> that they basically deplete their uh, their food supply by about 25% shooting yeah. all these hush puppies in the air. Because they try and they start talking about who can shoot them and they start sort of drunkenly throwing them up. And in one of the details I love in most Westerns, Rooster Cogburn would hit it on the first shot, but instead it, he starts out by missing and goes like three out of five or something like right. that. You know, just very unimpressed. And they end up wasting a ton of them just proving that they can shoot the corn dodgers, right? Yeah. These, these men are clownish a lot of the time in the book. You know, that, that Rooster Cogburn is a very, very funny character. And when he gets drunk and uh, interacts with his, he lives in the back of a, of a like dry goods store owned by a Chinese man and interacts with that guy and his cat. Like he's, he's clownish a lot of the time. He, he ultimately causes a lot of problems at the end by being drunk when they're approaching Ned Pepper's camp and bringing them too close to it you know, because he doesn't realize where they are and they set up camp too close to it. Um, it's an interesting contrast to Maddie Ross, who is never a clown. She's never clownish in this book. Maybe with her love of the pony a little bit, you know, those sort of girlish touches I really like about her. It reminds me of, uh, I always talk to you about in The Simpsons, I love when Lisa gets to be a little girl, like when Mr. Burns busts through her wall accidentally and she says, Santa? You know, like the moments where she gets to be a little girl, believably little girl. I love that when that's in Maddie Ross as well, you know, like her sort of enthusiasm for this pony that she has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, she believes that all cats are wicked through, though often useful. Yes. <laughs> One of the best lines in the book, who has not seen Satan in their sly faces? Exactly. She's so judgmental. <laughs> um, she's great. It's just such a fun book to read. It's hard not to just spend the whole time quoting this book you oh, know, yeah. when you talk about it. Uh, and you and I made a pact before we started to not just throw quotes back and forth at each other, uh, which is the only reason we're not doing it now. Um, but is that, you know, what makes somebody good? Do you think she's a good person? Do you think she does anything good? Can you identify goodness in her? I think the goodness is measured more in her resolve, you know? I think yeah. that when she says to somebody, well, but I'm saying you're not going to... As a contrast to righteous. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I'm thinking that there is something in her righteousness that, you know, is could be could, you know, construed as a good making her a good person where she's the one in the right more often than not. When she's the one who says, I'm not going to let you cheat me or I'm not going to let you, you know, 
get rid of me when the deal was that I come along. Everything that she wants to do and that the fact that she's the one who propels the narrative forward again and again, you admire her strength and her resolve yes. and yeah, her righteousness. In I that admire her one, huge amount. Admire her. And, you know, is it goodness? I don't, I don't know. It seems that, you know, she's on the right path in this story, that she wants what's right. But again, it's convoluted by this question of, you know, who is more good than evil in this, in this tale, you know? Does Lucky Ned Pepper, somebody who, de- who deserves to get, you know, sh- shot by a rifle from, you know, a mile away? Yes. It's, you know, I think it answers that, yes. I think the, the bad guys like Greaser Bob and, and all of these gross people <laughs> They, you show them, she shows them, and the uh, and the family that Rooster Cogburn is first on trial for having shot in cold blood. Um, he shows them to show you, hey, don't get confused. This isn't, is Rooster good? Is you know, is Rooster the one we're supposed to be on the side of, or the beef, or Maddie, and one of them is the best person? No, they're all on the right side. There are people on the wrong side too. Remember mm-hmm. that. You know, Mm -hmm. that there's real shittiness in this world. And like, fuck those people. They're selfish. They're stupid. They're mean. They're liars. They have no class. And those people exist. Those people exist. And don't lose sight of that. You know, this would not be a book to have a sort of noble. It's not like you reached Tom Chaney and he in any way invites sympathy. In Mm -hmm. fact, the opposite of him. He's even more pathetic than you can imagine and even grosser. And so anytime you encounter a villain in this, they're villainous. That's one Mm -hmm. of the reasons it's such like a satisfying read too, is you have the good guys going out and, you know, kicking some ass in their own like messed up fumbling way. Well, I think too, that's the contrast to Maddie when she meets Ned Pepper and they get along with like in a very civil conversation. And, you know, it's funny because later on when she meets Cole Younger, when she's an old woman, it's sort of the same sort of dynamic where even though this is a murderer and, and, you know, a, a criminal, because he, he stands up, up yeah, he and you know it, is treating her with respect she can respect him whereas fuck Frank james he won't even stand up to you know properly to say hello to me yeah um but she and ned pepper have this dynamic where you know they're very civil to each other because his righteousness is that is you know as an outlaw you know yeah. he you know knows that he's got to take care of the gang he's got to get them to the old uh, well he's following his own set of rules and i yeah. think that that's something that this book is trying that's, to think about is like are yeah. rules inherently good well yeah you know? exactly that's what i'm saying that her rules are on the right side in this case that you know yes. what she's aiming towards to her which, anybody who follows rules whatever those rules are is doing the correct thing yes know? oh yeah and, that's perfect <laughs> yeah you nailed it right there and you can see how thin of a worldview that is in some ways mm-hmm. you know that this yeah. is a book that that if it was another situation maddie would clearly be in the wrong you know if it's somebody coming to beg for their for mortgage, mortgage mortgage extension yes well she doesn't seem to have any problem with quantrell's raiders you know <laughs> like she doesn't necessarily she's clearly uh, uh pro-confederacy uh in some vague way although that's before her time certainly the political party she's aligned with suggests that um it's it's she would just do she would just sort of fall in line. But I think that the, that the book is, is sort of, you're right to say there's a humor about this character that's so important, that it's inviting. It's a non-judgmental humor when it comes to, uh, to Maddie Ross. 
you know, mm-hmm. that, that Portis is not judgmental of her in any way, shape, or form. I think he genuinely likes her, which makes us, the reader, genuinely like her a lot. Yeah, and, and Rooster's... Good light. And Rooster clearly feeling shame about his past. Yeah. Puts him in more of a light as being a, a good person. You know, somebody who actually looks back at what he's done and feels regret and drinks to forget about it, you know? Yes, yeah, yeah. Although it's interesting, yeah, it's very interesting. The The moral structures of this film, are, a film of this book, are very, very interesting. We've been going almost an hour. We should talk about the movies a little bit. Um, sure. The most famous one is the, is the 1960, more famous. I guess they're probably equally well-known. But, um, but the, the John Wayne one in 1969, and uh, uh, it's, it's, we agree, it sucks, right? <laughs> Kim Darby is terrible. I, I agree Ross. that it's, I, I, I would say it's fine. I'd say like mainly the thing too about both of the movies are they're fine. You just can't make this book into a movie. And I think obvi- the most obvious problem is the John Wayne version is that, yeah, Maddie is not a, the main character. And, <laughs> and not the performance a character, of, a character at all. the actress is of just such a whiff. You made it's an F minus. That you can see the Coen brothers watching that version and being like, oh, fuck, we have to fix that. Mm-hmm. You know, like this, this, this will not stand. This, this aggression will not stand, dude. <laughs> um, it really feels like the Coen brother version exists to fix the character of Maddie Ross. That that's its entire, yeah. which is very noble. It's a very noble thing. Yeah, and it's funny rewatching the Coen one for the first time since the theater. Um, it's you know I like it. I think that it has the right idea. I just think without her voice narrating yeah. this, it's just not, you just can't, you can take lines straight from the book and can be action scene for scene can be exactly right. And by the way, the stuff in the middle that the Coens add is terrible. Yeah. It's they really always bad. The do stuff that with the Indian, Anytime they yeah. add something to a book adaptation, it's fucking sucks. But the chain, the one little change that they made towards the end, uh, because unlike the John Wayne version, they add the epilogue where she's an old woman and she buries rooster, uh, yeah. near her home. Um, the one interesting change, small change that they make is that Rooster, you know, ends up in this Wild West show that she yeah. finds out about in the book. It's that her brother tells her about it. In the movie, Rooster sends her an invitation, more or less, to say, I'm going to be at this thing. Yeah. You should come see me. Bullshit. Yeah. Bullshit 100%. You know, I mean, the book, you know, once he saves her life at the end, and disappears and they never, and you know, she says, I'll come visit you or you'll come visit me. And then it just never happens. And then there's that really heartbreaking line about time passing us by, you know? Yeah. Um, That's just so much a part of the book. And I understand that they would want to like, not have to worry about adding the brother as a character at this late stage in the movie. But the fact that Rooster would invite her to come and then she arrives and he has passed away. But because you you realize this is the most (laughs) exciting and important thing that ever happened in her her life yes but to rooster this is like some other thing yeah he's not gonna go he's not gonna go fight both of the james gang brothers yeah i can't remember which one he's like i met both of them i remember frank but you think much much of jesse yeah yeah but but i don't i can't he can't even remember the other one he's like i'm told i met him but i don't even fucking remember it you know yeah yeah and he's not gonna go off and fight the johnson county war and then like 
have this nostalgia for this time, you know, this week that he spent with his kid hunting down this outlaw. Yeah. One of many times that he would have done that. Who I, almost you know, died when he was probably thinking, oh shit, she's going to die from this rattlesnake bite. I fucked up. You and know? then had the lawyer like come to him and be like, it's is all your fault, you asshole. Yeah. yeah. He's going to want to forget it more than anything. Um, so it's funny that, you know, the Coens would set out to say, we're going to tell the story right. And yeah. it's still, there's going to be that little moment where it's like, you got that wrong. You yeah. know, that was wrong. But you're right. Um, I mean, the yeah. voice of the book is so spectacular. And in the movie, you get it in little fits when she speaks, right? Yeah. But in the book, you live inside of it because it's all inside of her head. And there's just no comparison for it. And there's just no, like, read the book. Like, don't, this is one of those cases where it's, the Coen Brothers movie is fine. I think it's really well cast. I think that Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon. And, Phenomenal cast, yes. And, and Haley Stanfield are all, absolutely perfect uh i think the gang is tough to cast i think you're right about that and we can talk mm-hmm. in a little bit about that but it's it does basically as good a job as you could do with this it's interesting to me the um the the uh original movie with john wayne i was i it's easy to think of it as like one of his defining roles as an actor right but mm-hmm. it's actually the start of his twilight era like it's actually his scent of a woman you know what i mean mm, like sure. it's actually like when it is over for john wayne after this like cartoonish role you know it's made in 1969 his first movie he was ever in was in the 20s you know what i mean it's fucking yeah. what, what is it when is red river it's like 20 years after red river you know what i mean like it's it's funny to see it and be like oh this is not like a defining john wayne role in that way this is like um uh, a total like, is, uh, novelty act. It's By his color time, of money. <laughs> exactly. And then when they do Rooster Cogburn, they make a sequel six years later. It's entirely a fucking nostalgia act. That movie is like seeing the Rolling Stones in 2017. You know what I mean? Rooster, <laughs> yeah. you know, probably not even that good. Actually, probably not even that good. <laughs> Although they do put the Corn Dodger scene back in. It's like seeing Chumbawamba in 2017. <laughs> John Mawamba's heyday was probably a little smaller than John Wayne's. <laughs> also, but also with Chumbawamba, you know they're coming back because when they get knocked down, they get back up again. I've heard that about them. Um, but the but that but the John Wayne version is really a great example of just you know, don't do it. You know, like you just can't do it. Like, <laughs> yeah. just when well, people talk yeah. about movies betraying a book, it's that's that's one of those that you're right. It's fine. John Wayne version feels like you know someone just read the book and you tell and you say, oh, well, tell me what it is. Tell me from beginning to end what the story is, and they'll tell you the story, and then they're like, oh, good, I'm going to write the screenplay right now. Yeah, and, and it's like, like oh, what was get- that detail about the reins in his mouth, which isn't like a story that Rooster Cogburn is telling. It's like it doesn't mm-hmm. happen within this book. It's like some shit that happened a long time ago. And then it becomes the climax of that one, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's like someone gets the... I would say gets the beats right, you know, of the, the, the adventure of the story, but doesn't yeah. come close to what True Grit is, you know? It's also the Even way in slightly. which it's quote-unquote funny is just so fucking awful compared to the humor of the book, you know? It's like they heard it's funny, too. This is a funny book and a funny movie, so they they do the worst. And in terms of latter-day, you know, uh, John Wayne roles that are really poignant... Don Siegel's The Shootist, obviously, is the masterpiece. You know, yeah. that's the one that's, you know, all about, you know, kind of debunking the myths. And it's his Unforgiven, you know. 
Yes. And True Grid, I'd say, is his um, Firefox. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's like, it's just, it doesn't feel, like you said, it does not feel like the significant role that people should remember John Wayne for. No, it's the beginning of the Twilight era. I stick yeah. with Scent of a Woman, where it's like, maybe Pacino makes some good movies after that. Maybe he doesn't, but it's but it's over. Whatever it was is over <laughs> in that yeah. moment, you know? <laughs> Fair enough. And, uh, and, of course, you know, Pacino continued making movies for much longer after that. John Wayne is done making movies basically 10 years after that. By the late 70s, he's not doing anything in note. One thing I want to circle back on here in the book, uh, just as a, a detail that I enjoy, um, especially having read Norwood uh, and True Grit next to each other recently, was um, the use of animals, you know, the, or just yeah. the appearance of animals. There's General Sterling Price, there's Little Blackie, Maddie's Pony. Yes. Uh, there are mentioned are the spectacle the spectacle. sterling price was a uh, was a confederate general by confederate the way. General, we yeah. didn't mention <laughs> it's another reference to like this is like a pro-confederacy book in a lot of ways or people not pro it's not a pro-confederacy book scratch that that is incorrect it's full of people who were part of the confederacy who we are not supposed to hate simply because they have an association with the confederacy right uh, but anyway, those are the animals who appear. And then, of course, the rattlesnakes at the end. Uh, and then the rat that uh, that Rooster shoots in his house, which has one of the great jokes that he's got a rat writ for the rats. <laughs> yes. I love that. And I, uh, have, friend, and I have been, Asia, what's the exact line he's going to issue? I have a writ. I have a rat writ. Um, you can look it up. But uh, our friend Bill Tech mentioned that fondness for Portis would be a good uh, name for a 90s band, right? And <laughs> Rat Rit would be my hair metal band from the 80s, if I were back then. Rat Rit. Uh, would be great. But uh, also mentioned, you know, this, uh, the speckled sticks that they keep back in uh, Yale County that eat the rats, Saul and yeah. Little David. Uh, and the senator's bird dog, the Cheney shoots that he's also, you know, guilty yeah, of. Yeah, that's what he's really wanted for. That's right. why people are actually coming after him. And then, of course, the mule that's abused anyway, just the recurrence of animals throughout this, you know, kind of occupying this time and space with these human characters is just such a nice detail to have throughout it. And it made me realize, having read Norwood, that the way food is used in Norwood, the way that yeah. the characters are constantly eating and he's well, constantly buying. Well, the first great moment in Norwood is when food. he throws the sausage at the Yeah, end. <laughs> when he's in the shower. That's terrific. Um, so yeah, so I felt like just like the way, the, just the way he would introduce food in Norwood throughout the narrative and how funny it was. I feel like the animals are the food of True Grit. You know, they're used <laughs> the same way. Even though True Grit appreciates its food, obviously, we, as we've already mentioned. Yeah, and the, the horses the are dodgers. Such a big factor in it. All of the horses, the little... And it's heartbreaking when little Blackie gets ridden to death at the end, you know? And, yeah. and Maddie's really getting upset and Rooster has to ride him to save her life and knows that that's what he has to do. Um, and I'll admit, Chris, I, 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 I cried this time at the end. Yeah, I welled up. I don't me, know man. what the fuck was going on with me. I, I'm just stressed out or something, but I welled up with tears for like yeah. the last 30 pages, just like fighting it back the whole time. I'm glad to hear that. I was afraid you're going to totally ridicule me, but I no, really... No, why would I ridicule? You know, I was really such a bully, man. this time. Uh, no, I think, yeah. I think was... this is a good, this is a good book for as, this is a great book to grow old with too. I got one thing out of it when I was young. I got another thing out of it 10 years ago. And now I feel like I'm getting the most out of it, you know, maybe because I'm, I'm 
getting old and it's about a character who's old remembering that it's that it's a, a book that's viewed through the lens of nostalgia the pain of remembering you know mm -hmm. in some ways but anything else you have to say about i mean there's so much to say well about. you know i was thinking with the movies too i was just going over my notes and one of the things that i annoys me about the movies that i think make the movies bad adaptations is they are against filming in arkansas and east texas mm. that they always want to go out and film in these old west vistas and since the book is specifically a critique of the idea of the mythic old west placing it in that more eastern context where a lot of these marshals were working is really important and that Arkansas and East Texas looks so different yeah. than the Texas of the mythic imagination and that a lot of these cowboy stories and gunslinger stories are actually about the South in some way that they're not actually about you know when you think of like the James gang and people like that that it's not the gold rush era California West that appears in movies, which is one of the things that irks me about the movies that they film it out and like Monument Valley and all that shit. Well, that's another thing too about the Coen brothers movie is it just came at a time in cinema history where Westerns, if they get made, if they get funded are going to be these expressly artistic films. You know, I'm thinking about the assassination of Jesse James, you know, things like that. The it's just a, a time where, where you can't exactly, you can't, you can't not make it mythical in that way. You know, you have to yeah. make it like it is this big, important thing and the deacon's photography and yeah uh, just the use of you know the, the the additional things like the indian who comes to take the dead body and stuff like yeah. that is just it's too pretty it, it might be jim jarmish's fault i don't know i love dead man but i feel yeah. like since then uh because people can't just make a straight up western film anymore the way they used to up to 1980 when the long riders came out you know yeah it's it's got to be you know this uh, looking back artistic thing that's more yeah. like an acid trip than anything. Yeah. And, no, uh, it's got to be more of a 10 star kind of sensibility. It needs, it needs to have that like um, sense of like, of like kitsch that Neil Jordan has in, in like Mona Lisa and stuff. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that it, it needs a different tone. I agree with you completely that it can't be mythic. Um, but it, but also like gritty realism, I don't think is right for it either. Yeah. No, I think you're right. But uh, the tone that that the Coen brothers take, I think, is not what I would have gotten from the book. Yeah. And not setting it in Arkansas, I think, you know, not shooting in Arkansas, I think is a big part of that. Too. Well, they can't, they just can't help but have their style be garish and overblown. Mm -hmm. you know, they just, they just can't help it. They, they just have a, a disease where they're always too much. No matter yeah. And, what. I, and I love Deacons, you know, obviously Deacons yes. are the best DPs of all time, Great. but just the, just yeah. the, the really turned up brightness of the final confrontation between Rooster and uh, the outlaws, you know, yeah. just how everything is so golden and yellow. It just doesn't feel right. You know, no, especially that I mean, that's that's the weakest part of the book where she falls down the rattlesnake hole and it gets all a little over the top. It's it's the one where it gets yeah more of yeah but, more standard I guess I would say yeah yeah it gets you know perils of Pauline. <laughs> although think, when she gets, although when she pauses to say this, I thought is a pretty fix. <laughs> 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 terrific. Line. But we didn't talk about with the Goan brothers that that Tom Cheney 
who was the man who killed her father with the black mark on his face. Mm. He's really hard to cast. Josh Bolin is not satisfying in the role at all. And I forget who even plays him in the, uh, the John Wayne version. Do you remember? I, I just watched the last 30 minutes of the John Wayne version recently. So I saw, I saw him from his introduction on. And I don't recall the actor's name, but yeah, he was 100% wrong. Yeah. Just nothing, no way would I have ever assumed Tom Chaney was like that. Yeah. And even Josh Brolin, that it just doesn't feel right. And I realized that like when I was talking with you about this a little, it's it's the least distinct character in the book. It's sort of the least sharply etched. And you see that in the casting where they put somebody in any of the other roles and you immediately go yes or no. You know what I mean? You either go, mm-hmm. Glenn Campbell, not going to cut it. Or Matt Damon, that's great. You know, that kind yeah. of thing. Um, with with Tom Chaney, you go, ah, that's not, I don't think that's right. right? Maybe you could do better. You know, there, there's something funny about that role where I was trying to like in my head recast it. And I couldn't think of a perfect one for it. The best I could come up with is Steve Buscemi would have worked for mm-hmm. Tom Chaney to me. Yeah. Somebody yeah. a Weasley, somebody who feels sorry for himself. Um, I think that Barry Pepper might have been a little better. He plays Ned Pepper in it, that he would have been better in the Tom Chaney role. As- I, I totally agree. When I heard that he was cast, I thought he was going to play Lucky Ned Pepper, actually. And, uh, no, I thought he was going to play Tom Chaney, actually. He did yes. Like- yeah, switch them. Brolin as as yeah. uh, Ned Pepper and and Barry Pepper as Tom Chaney, I think is is better in some way. He needs to be more sniveling. Yeah, you know? but 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 you're right. I think that because you're given so much so little information about him in the book, it's you know you don't think of it as being like a tough part to cast. Even I think Matt even has a line about you know when she's de- describing him and says I'll come back to him later and never does. You know. Yeah. Um, you think, of, you think of someone like Labeef. You think of someone like Labeef being a tough part to cast. But yeah. as you said, Damon is perfect. He's great in the movie. Yes, so. where Labeef is initially introduced in the book as being uh, ostentatious and flamboyant. And you think, oh, this guy's going to be the guy who has no grit and be a phony in comparison to uh, Rooster Cogburn. He's going to be too handsome. He's going to be full of shit. But he's not. He's just different. Than, than Rooster Cogburn. It's not that he's lacking in grit. He's just more of a regular guy. And so I think you need someone who's a bit uh, overtly handsome and a little bit clownish. And Matt Damon is great at playing comedic roles. He's a really underrated comedic actor. It ends up being perfect casting for that reason because then later on when he needs to have some measure of gravity, that the gravity is kept in it and matt damon can obviously do that as well it's a tough it's a tough role mm-hmm. but i just think that i think that we haven't talked much about it i think jeff bridges is phenomenal as rooster cogburn oh yeah he he makes if you're going to watch the movie that's a really good goddamn reason to watch it you know mm-hmm. it's just oh, yeah. to see him do the role right and, and in a funny way i thought you know it would be cool if they made Rooster Cogburn with him, remade Rooster Cogburn with <laughs> yeah. him and paired him up with some other actress who's sort of doing a play on one of her earlier characters, the way Catherine Hepburn is sort of redoing her African queen character in a mm-hmm. lot of ways with yeah. that. Um, that would be cool because then it wouldn't have the baggage of the book and they could just go bananas and do whatever they wanted with it. And I wouldn't have to feel as much like, oh, I'm just not... I'm just not feeling this movie because you just don't, you just don't have it. You just don't have Maddie Ross the way you do with the book. 
Yeah, I'll, I'll also say too, because you just reminded me, introducing Rooster in the commode initially is yeah. also a bad choice. That's, yeah. a, that's instinctively, I can understand why they'd want to do that. It's a very Cohen move. Yeah, but, but having him seeing him on the stand. introduced in the court is the way to do it. Yeah. Yes, especially because he's so uncertain in that scene that yeah. you do you are left with the sense of not of being confronted with somebody totally righteous but with somebody who's a little bit like iffy you know that this guy mm-hmm. is 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 hard to read and is he the right person you know is he he's just he's he's a little bit shady in that courtroom scene that he's not uh, an agent of law and order Placing him in the courtroom context shows in which he is an agent of chaos, not of law and order. Yeah. And how he's just out of step too with the way things are going, where someone's going to say, there are questions we need to ask about what you did. You're not just going to get away with what you did and we're going to let you walk out of here and call you a hero. We're going to deconstruct it and see, you know, (laughs) if you're actually a monster. Yeah. So that's, yeah, that's the better way to do it. But they probably, you know, that's all tied around the hanging uh, that happens early in the book. And if you're cutting Mm -hmm. stuff lots, that's the kind of stuff I can forgive. It's the problem with the movie is not those kind of changes. I agree. It's, they could have done something better. It's very Cohen-y, but it's like, you gotta, you know, you've gotta, you've gotta make changes to make a movie. (laughs) No, now I'm back to you. It's like they should have introduced him in court. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to have to make some changes, but yeah, I'll, I'll uh, Monday morning quarterback. Both these fucking movies all goddamn day long. Watch out. Um, is there anything else that you wanted to say about this book or or movies or any of it before we move on to our dessert pairings? The only thing I wanted to talk about at one point, um, just in terms of the style of this book, which is, as you said, so hard to pin down and define what's so unique and amazing about it. But one uh, one little thing that he uses, one tool is Maddie's uh, quotes oh, for certain words. Yes. That she's, yes. you know, that she has uh, messed furthered with this further with the snakes that it would she would be in a fine pickle that yes. she knew that they were up to some stunt that, <laughs> stunt stunt uh, gets quoted like six times in the quotes in it that uh to bear west for a dugout some squatter had built i love the use of her quotes in this which word specifically she chooses to put in quotes the gives her such a unique voice a the language of this book is a joy um Yes, my dessert pairing, which I have already mentioned, is Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you to read a Charles Portis book called The Dog of the South, uh, which uh, was written in 1979. It's, uh, you know, again, about 10 years after True Grit. And it is about a guy whose wife runs off with her ex-husband, right? So can you follow that? That the guy's wife... His wife runs off with her ex-husband and he follows their credit card receipts down to Mexico uh, and, you know, basically only brings a gun to go after them and bring his car back. And he sort of has in the... the back... And the indignities he has to drive the ex-husband's shitty car to go find them. Yes. Um, yeah, it is a... It is a uh, you know, it's a road movie. It's all about the troubles he encounters on the way. Road movie. It's a road book. Um, it is. Uh, it's fun. What else do I have to say about it? I don't. It's, I don't have deep remarks prepared on it. But if you like True Grit, I think this is. 
I think it's True Grit is the best, and then the other four are all on the exact same tier. You can't go wrong with any of the other ones. This one is my my favorite because I think it has the hardest edge of any of them. Mm-hmm. This is this is the closest he gets to being um, uh, mean and unhappy. Portis is sort of uh, he's a pessimistic writer who's sort of preternaturally good disposition. I think just has a great sense of humor. Great sense of humor. The world doesn't get him down. The world's a terrible place, but there's no reason to be sad about it. You know, kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, I I, think. Yeah, I never put into effect, but I've always wanted to start carrying around cards to give to people that says "quit your belly aching." (laughs) Spelled uh, K W I C H. Yeah, all one word. (laughs) Um. That's it. That's a good joke. This is probably my favorite of the other four as well, though Norwood is phenomenal. They're all Norwood great. is great. They're all great. They're all great. Although it's been a, a while since I've read uh, Master of Atlantis. So that is that is next on my list to read that. And like, and like I said, you mentioned earlier, it's easy to be a completist with him. So I'm already halfway through rereading all of them again. Yeah. Uh, and by the end of this week, you know, in self-isolation i'm sure i'll be done with all of them masters of atlantis it feels like the one that he was like all right i'm gonna climb the ladder this is gonna be my big one this yeah. is gonna be the huge literary masterpiece since nobody's willing to acknowledge true grit yeah. um and i'm not saying it doesn't obtain that i think it's the one he put the most work into and it feels like a, you know it feels like he was trying to go for like a it feels intentionally prodigious like a thomas Pinchon level of you know uh, was what he's going for, not stylistically, obviously, but just like, well, there's a little bit gonna, of this is going to be my gravity's ring, yeah. you know? Yeah. That yeah. maybe the, yeah, there's a little bit of that stuff in there. It's the but. big heavy one. Yes. Yes. But also, but, but great. It's great. Yes. Although it's, you know, Gringo's is the one that's much more like, uh, I can't think of his name now. He just said it. Mr. Inherit Vice. Pinchon. Yeah. It's much more pension ask that in terms mm-hmm. of its plot gringos is a lot more uh has the same focus on like you know mad bombers and ufo cultists and shit that mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to pretend was interesting yeah and what is your pairing what is the dessert after my dessert true grit my dessert it's funny the guy who played tom cheney uh whose name we couldn't think of i just realized he plays wild bill hickok in little man uh little big man Oh yeah, which uh, yeah, which a lot of people usually compare to True Grit, since they're you know both these reflective yeah. westerns with these narrators with a very specific voice. Uh, but that's not what I'm going to pick. Actually, I'm going to pick. Uh, have you heard of Angle of Repose by uh, Wallace Stegner? No, I am not familiar with this at all. It's a Wallace really... Stegner sounds like a writer out of a Kurt Vonnegut book. <laughs> um, it's an interesting experiment. This came out in 1971. It's also narrated by an amputee. In this case, it's a retired uh, history professor who's writing a biography of his grandmother. So the narrative of the novel shifts to this strong spirited young woman set in the second half of the 19th century. But what's interesting about the history of this experiment is that uh, they're directly taken, the, the, narr- the, the background is directly taken from the personal letters of author Mary Hellick Foote who grew up in a mining communities of the turn of the century American West and would write up to people about uh, back home about the real West. So Stegner was given permission from her family, from Foote's family to incorporate these letters specifically into this narrative. So it's this history professor looking back and it's actually the writing of Mary Halleck Foote 
that he's, and, and so sort of the book kind of met with a little bit of a controversy because of that, because you know, everyone said, well, you're just appropriating this forgotten writer's you know, work for your own novel. Um, but again, since he, you know, the family said it was okay, then there was no reason he couldn't. So it's a really interesting experiment and it definitely feels True Grit-esque having come out uh, two or three years after that book was published. Oh, okay. Cause I was going to ask when, what, when it was published. Yeah, no, this followed. That's, interesting. That's fascinating. It's a really interesting book. It's not, you know, at the level of true grit, obviously. Yeah. Um, but but it it's one like that I think about. Described a real life true grit. It's sort of <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I'm going to go with that rather than my intuition to go to a high wind in Jamaica, because I couldn't remember if I had already used that one in the past as a I don't think you have, parity. but high wind in Jamaica always deserves to be mentioned. Yeah. In that it's, you know, a, a pirate tale through the eyes of kids, the way that true grit is yeah. a Western tale through the eyes of a child. You saying high wind in Jamaica reminds me of the other day here in self-isolation. Parker, my son, walked through the room singing high riding woman with a whip. And <laughs> I thought, that's pretty okay with me. You guys been watching know. a lot of uh, Sam Fuller in the... <laughs> I don't know when he saw it. I guess he watched my DVD of it sometime, or I don't know. Maybe it was in a YouTube playlist I had. I have no idea where he heard it. I did not sit and watch uh, uh, 40 Guns with him. So who the hell knows? Who knows? Um, this was fun. I'm glad we read this. I'm glad we honored, you know, Portis recently passed away. That's something we haven't talked about at all in this. Uh, and he's, he's been uh, um, a favorite for me and you for a long time, John. He's an author that really feels like mine, yeah. that really feels close to me, that, it's that, that these books belong to me somehow. I'm not going to suggest that Portis leaving this world is what turned it to shit so quickly. But yeah, it's hard. I, I, I can't say you wouldn't know the right time to leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. I can't say, you know, at the lowest, I imagine, you know, this situation can get at the most depressed I can get because of it. I feel like works like True Grid out there, as we said before, you know, are salvations, you know, just things that you can yeah. escape into and really just perk you up. <laughs> so, I, read, I read and talk about art in bad times for the same reason I do it in good times. There's no reason to change it. And we both so. shared our stack of books that we're reading in our isolation and we both had true grit in them because we were reading them for this podcast, but I yeah. think it should be in everybody's isolation book stack for yeah. sure. Yeah, if you, if and it's a quick read, you know, if you just, one afternoon, the inspiration strikes you, get it, you won't regret it. Absolutely. Have a good night, everyone. <laughs>